It's the Danger Gnome Podcast for Monday, March 25th, 2019. Welcome to the Danger Dome Podcast. Today's show was recorded at the Trek World Headquarters. During the interview, I asked two Trek executives questions that came from you folks out there in listener land. We asked you to post questions on our Instagram and Facebook page. And uh, some of them I could actually ask. Uh, some of them were ridiculous, ridiculous old crap that you people should put in the rearview mirror. But I'm not here to be your uh, psychotherapist. I'm here to uh, put something in your ear hole that might actually make some sense in the fat or plus bike world. So uh, I must have been pretty nervous for this uh, for this interview because I talk way too much. So let me apologize up front for my ramblings, but if you want to hear what the largest bike company in the world has to say on the subject of fat bikes, wheel size, and maybe even gnomes, stay tuned. Before we get to that, I thought I'd share some information about an event that we're hosting at the end of April called the Rockin' Beach Funduro. The event is my answer to some gripes that I've heard about big-time serious fat bikes. <laughs> sorry, sorry about uh, serious fat bike races. So, you know those the races with ten drones over the starting line, and that has a corporate name in front of the name of the race, and uh, the plastic races. I like to call them. So this is instead of just complaining about it, uh, I thought I'd run a race that was just for fun and not really a race, just an event for. A lot of other people. I hear a lot of people say that racing is ruining cycling, and I don't think that's true at all. I know a lot of people that are thriving in the current race situations, and there are some races out there that are not plastic, that are grassroots and great. Uh, but for every cyclist out there that racing is serving very well, there are 10 other cyclists that have different ideas and preferences. Again, so just instead of complaining about it, I decided to create a fun event that might serve as part of the solution for those 10 other racers. Probably only three of them. The other six, you know, won't ever be happy. Uh, we're hosting an event for everyone that likes bikes, beer, barbecue, beaches, uh, with a side order of live music. We're partnering with three local bike shops and a bunch of other companies, and we're trying to get demo bikes from fat bike companies so that people that have never ridden a fatty, can give it a try. I've contacted Pat Smadje about doing a gnome food trials demo uh, between the two live rock and roll bands that we have booked. So mark your calendars for April 28th. It's the Rockin' Beach Funduro. It's in Port Washington, Wisconsin. And there will be a link in the show notes with almost none of the details because we don't really have that many details right now. But there'll be more to come on the uh, detail of the details. So we have even more good news about fun bike events, but we'll share those with you another time. So next up, we're going to get into our interview with Travis and Chris from Trek. Please welcome to the show, Travis Ott. He is the mountain bike marketing manager for Trek and Chris Drews. He is the mountain and fat bike product manager for Trek. 
Hey guys, thanks for having us. Yeah, great to have you, have you here. Here we are in the uh, the Alp Tuez conference room here at Trek World Headquarters on a snowy day. Mm-hmm. And uh, at Travis's uh, suggestion, we got some questions from our readers. And uh, Paul Barrett from the UK asks, 27.5 fat, you know, why do we need 27.5 fat? He seems to be happy with his 26-inch. Yeah, that was... Um kind of what we were thinking back, uh, you know, in 2013, but, uh, fast forward to 2014 and we were looking at, uh, developing our second fat bike in the mountain bike product line. And we took a close look at what we were doing with uh, 29 plus development at the time and 29 er development that we'd had previous to that and found that frankly, there were a lot of opportunities with, you know, tire dynamics and wheel dynamics that could be transferred or potentially, uh, benefit, uh, fat bikes. And, uh, it was too big to ignore, frankly. And so as we delved into development on our 2016 Farley, uh, we took a look at, uh, not only the wheels and tires, but kind of how they work together underneath the rider. So it's, you can't just look at, uh, you know, one element, you have to look at everything as a, as a system, right? Because you have to pedal these bikes. There's mm-hmm. not an engine in them. So, you know, from there, uh, you know, fast forward to today, we've seen multiple uh, sizes of 27.5 tires. And now you see uh, multiple manufacturers for tires and wheels, um, both at the high end. You have Head, you know, you have a slew of Bontrager products, 45 North, uh, you know, the product list goes on and on. And it's uh, it's really developed into kind of its own, uh, its, its own beast. Uh, and people are really understanding that performance gains are found on both the race side of things and kind of the performance end, but also in the adventure side, uh, you know, when you're getting into those uh, situations where there's deeper snow, uh, tracks are maybe less groomed, mm-hmm. a little bit more irregular. So. And to add to that, too, is we, in the development, we also wanted to keep it 26 as an option too so we mm-hmm. designed the bike to be both 27.5 and 26 and that really worked out well because we saw we were attracting different customers as well too and kind of tailored the lineup to that as well right i think it was about a couple of years ago that we transitioned uh, the entire line to 27.5 and that was really because we had seen that uh, 27.5 was widely adopted throughout the industry and the world Um, But prior to that, as Travis indicated, you know, we offered 26 by 47 setups as well as 27, 5 by 3, 8 and 4, 5 um, as options. So right on. And that's one of the things Will Ross is uh, racing uh, for the track store of Anchorage now. And Will Ross is kind of well known in the fat bike world. Uh, He won the fat bike Berkey and uh, several other big races. He's using both 26 and 27.5 rims. And he he says in an article that we published on the site that 26 inch he would use on a hillier course, a course with more cornering, with more accelerating and decelerating. And then he would go for the taller rim on a flatter course where just flat out speed, you know, a, a race like Arrowhead 135, where it's, uh, where it's a snowmobile trail, uh, that isn't really necessarily that well groomed, but it's just pour the power down for 16 hours straight. Um, do you agree with that kind of assessment or do you have 
additional areas where you feel that 27.5 is an advantage? Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, I'd, I'd agree with, um, you know, his setup. Um, I think it is very regionally based, though. You know, what we find from our, our users globally is that uh, conditions are not only uh, differentiated on a, you know, on a regional scale, but they're day-to-day. So what we might be optimal for one day is completely not optimal for the next day. And uh, so those users that are specializing in, say, you know, race are able to, you know, really refine their equipment and have a quiver of tires and wheels to optimize for, you know, race day. And you see that up at, you know, major races in Marquette, for example, the polar roll is a very good example of, you know, you guys, you have guys switching their equipment right up until the start, checking tire pressure, changing this, changing that, affecting their geometry, you know, on, on the Trek Farley's, you can adjust the geometry of the wheelbase uh, with the stranglehold dropout. So you have people adjusting uh, a lot of different uh, elements of the bike to get, you know, maybe more front end traction, more cornering, you know, more flotation, things like that. So yeah, people are definitely uh, able and willing to explore at their own, uh, you know, for their own that's, for their own niche use, right? Yeah. Exactly. That's something we, I love about the fat bike market too, is just how much people adapt their bikes and how much it can change and all the different setups that you see there. There is very much a roll your own type mentality in this. Absolutely. Segment. You know, there's a, there's a sect of fat bikers in Iowa that do this race triple D and they aero bar their their fat bikes because the last 30 miles is just a straight shot and you know they they take advantage of every little bit that they can to get there faster so one of the things that uh that i think would be interesting to talk about is tire pressures and tire setup so can you give us an idea about that on on yeah i mean i i think that uh you know, I'm speaking very broadly. I think there's a lot of opportunity for, you know, all your listeners and even those that aren't listening um, to take some time and um, play around a little bit and figure out what works best with their trail conditions. You know, I'm going to make some, you know, statements here, but they're broadly based. So what I'm saying may not work in all different applications, but generally speaking, you have to take into account, um, what the temperature is differential is inside versus outside. That's kind of basic, um, but it makes a drastic difference if you're not accounting for that. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you're setting your bike up inside at 70 degrees and it's 20 degrees outside, you're going to have a 50 degree temperature drop and simple physics would tell you that the, you know, air pressure is going to change. Based on PSI is going to go to four or it's going to go to a number lower. Right. And, um, you know, just riding with friends and colleagues around here, there's pretty clear evidence that, uh, you know, it's more of an art rather than a science as well, even though there is some science behind it. And, uh, you know, even if you have a temperature drop, consistent temperature drop of 50 PS or sorry, 50 degrees, um, depending on the snow conditions, you may have to run a PSI, uh, difference just to be able to ride or roll um, through varied terrain or have the appropriate traction. So and that's kind of the, the the litmus test is if you're walking, you probably shouldn't take if your front wheel's washing out or you're walking things that other people are riding. You know, drop your pressure. Uh, and I've always found that it's a one thousand one per psi. At least 
if you don't have a gauge with you, you can kind of use that. Right. If you set up at 10, then if you take out 1,001, 1,002, 1,003 in the normal spacing, then you're going to get you're going to get down to near seven. I mean, generally, if you're not running on firm conditions, you want to be able to see a wrinkle in mm-hmm. your rear tire when you're weighted on your rear tire. And then you generally want to have a wrinkle under uh, compression of your front tire. Obviously, your weight balance on your bike is biased to the rear, you know, say a 70-30. So typically, I run a PSI um, less in my front tire as a result, and that yields fairly good results around here. So, cool. But there's obviously other variables there with uh, tire compounds uh, being different, you know, TPI differences, how much rubber is in the tire, um, and, and, the, and, the, and the volume of the tire, right? The size of the tire, right? <laughs> size of the rider. The, and the real thing is we ride on such a X factor of the substrate. Snow is such a variable. And you could take the same snowfall and hit it when it's fresh and then hit it the day after, and it might be completely different. It could be crossed by then. So, yeah, that's, that's and that's... I think that's what's spurring a lot of the debate that we have over hysteresis and all the math that's involved. I mean, we all kind of accept that this taller wheel, easier propulsion idea is a mathematical certainty. But then when you add in all those other variables, it becomes a quandary as to what's best, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you go back to uh, 2014 when we were doing some of the 27.5 development um, Travis Brown was actually uh, quite instrumental in uh, in some of this discussion, and he was actually reading some tractor science mm-hmm. books. Mm-hmm. And your you know your listeners can uh, can look these up, but you know there's a lot of evidence that suggests that you know diameter versus width um, as a means to improve flotation. Um, it strongly suggests that there is at least equals the levels of flotation improvement by adding diameter um, as adding cross section, but that energy efficiency on soft terrain improves by adding diameter. So um, that's kind of the basis for a lot of our um, exploring that. And, uh, you know, I I would say that generally speaking, anecdotally, I've seen that users with similar width tires but different diameters, the larger diameter always wins out, especially in loose terrain. And... uh, one of the polar roll fat bike races that I did up in Marquette a couple mm-hmm. years ago was a prime example of that. I was actually um, running 26 by 47 setup just because that's the equipment I had at the time. And uh, it was interesting to see how riders around me with similar skill level were just blown right past me with their 27 five by four, five setups. Mm. Yeah. The yeah. polar roll was just last weekend and it was another just total gut check of six hours. The, the winner yeah, I think the year I did it, it was five hours. Um, the winner was three forty-five or something like that. Yeah. But uh, another challenging, very warm, warm race, right, where everything just turns to mashed potatoes. Mm-hmm. Well, let's take another uh, uh, reader question. Andy Amstutz from Manistee, Michigan. He said, "You came out with the twenty-seven point five by four on a fat bike, and then it exploded. How do you feel when you see an innovation that you started spread across the industry? Do you guys high five? You know, I think we... Yes. <laughs> yes, so much in that, yeah, you are taking a risk initially. We were very confident 
going into it, but we also came out with a product lineup that was about half 26 by a 4.8 and then 27.5 by 4. So we were, you know, we had both in the mix, but to see it adopted so strongly is great. It is very gratifying. Yeah, you know, I think one thing that needs to be said is that Trek doesn't create new standards just to create new standards. And I think sometimes people think that there's a, you know, an agenda behind a the new diabolical hand well, ringing in the back room. Th- you know, I've been I would even sl- question the word standard. There, we're providing options, right? right. Because twenty six, you could the bikes would still work with twenty six. Twenty seven five is an That's option true. as well. Very true. And you can see that different people gravitated towards different options. The racers right. went to twenty seven five. More of the adventure explorers just out for a rip on the local trails. They were going to. 26 by a wider yeah. tire. It is such a deja vu moment from 26 to 29, that whole discussion, uh, which resolved itself in the field. You know, it just became it did. super apparent that <laughs> 29ers yep. roll over things better. So, yeah. Yeah, finally Europe has uh, come around, and it looks like 29 is kind of the thing going forward, at least for a lot of, a lot of markets. But getting back to that, I think – you know, when we see something that technologically provides an advantage and we can actually experience it mm-hmm. in multiple uh, disciplines, um, um, it's sometimes hard and it's hard to ignore it. We generally think that if it ex- proves the experience for someone on the bike, we're going to go for it. Um, as long as it's not too much of a disruptor, we, we're not going to, you know, put all the work in and then just say, oh, nope, can't, can't launch that new thing because it's, it's too revolutionary or too different. You know, right. If it's going to provide a better experience to the end user, it's going to make mountain biking better for everyone. Yes, it's yes. it's worth exploring. Yep. yep. Cool. And these next two questions kind of are the same. Uh, I'm going to use Julio's question. He's from Crown Point, Indiana. How wide will fat go? Is 4.8 to 5 inches the limit, or is is there a need for a wider? or even taller, we can add both of those things in there, because we're at a 31-inch tall tire now with the fattest B-fat, 27.5 right. fat. Uh, so, you know, I think as you look at um, a fat bike, you got to take into account the drivetrain, and you have to pedal these things, as I said before, and there's actually kind of a limit to what people want to pedal in terms of Q factor, right? So Q factor refers to where your pedal placement is in space. Right, the whole human ergonomic issue. Right, and so I think the industry has kind of found that that 190, 197 uh, rear OLD is kind of a really happy medium of you have decent Q factor, you have decent tire size options, and, uh, you know, that does kind of limit tire width, as uh, as a function of growing that, you know there are some uh, tires. We actually have brought some in um, by a competitor brand, um, and at five oh five, I guess is the exact measurement in width. You know we've ridden these for several years, and I'd say they're very good at what they do in really loose, you know, snow conditions. But they are definitely slow, <laughs> and so you start to see kind of you know, how those, how width is good, but it's slow. Right. And weight also comes along with that bigger tire. So uh, it it seems like that 2000 gram tire is the one that 
is just too painful to push. Yeah, I mean, I don't think they're, I mean, we've had these that wheel set sitting around and no one has opted to ride it <laughs> Right for the we, sheer fact. We did a test with, with that tire and we determined that the advantage of that tire is in eight inches or more of fresh snow. <laughs> so how often do you ride in fresh ungroomed snow, period? That much uh, of it, too. That's a... That's a big snow day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, to answer the question directly, you know, additional diameter we feel can improve the efficiency um, without further compromising drivetrain. You know, mm-hmm. right now the chain is getting really close to the tire with the current setups that, you know, the industry is running. Mm-hmm. So um, we don't really anticipate drivetrains getting any wider because just of the Q factor acceptance that we talked about. And um, so I would say that that uh, diameter has more opportunity or uh, exploration in the future. All right, and here comes from my friend Ron Chewy of Rochester, Minnesota. Have fat bikes jumped the shark? <laughs> are they done? Are they over? You know, a lot. Of, there were a lot of naysayers. Maybe Travis, you should answer this question. But there was, you know, a lot of uh, ah, fat bikes are dead. A couple of years ago, but I'll tell you, we talked to retailers all over the globe, and that's not what they're saying no fat bikes have not jumped the shark i think they've they've maybe settled into a very good spot right now where there's we're still selling a ton of fat bikes it's a very important part of our business and uh it's something that you maybe didn't have the huge growth that it initially had when fat bikes were just Everybody was selling fat bikes, and mm-hmm. it was just the success story of the cycling industry. And right now, everyone's talking about electric bikes, and that's the mm-hmm. success story for cycling right now. But fat bikes, have, actually, they do a very good business for us, and it's something that keeps improving in sort of degrees for us every year, too. And yeah. I know you're a global company, but you are almost dead center in <laughs> one of the biggest fat bike hotspots in America, at least. Right. I mean, the opportunities for for trail riding and getting feedback from users is awesome here. Um, you know, the other thing I would point out is it's still getting new users out on bikes that either right. didn't have a bike before or would be sitting on the couch otherwise. And so we love hearing those stories about people getting out riding that wouldn't otherwise. Um, so that's, that's a huge thing. I think uh, the other opportunity is, you know, Europe tested the waters with fat bikes a couple of years ago and in most places they didn't find it was something that was sustainable they didn't have the infrastructure and nor interest in most markets there are pockets of europe that are doing really well with fat bikes and, and i think UK. those um, will continue to grow and who knows in five years we could be seeing that start to re-catch on in other other european markets uh but you know the markets that have historically done well, um, that have snow on the ground consistently, Michigan, Wisconsin, Vermont, you know, the Rockies, Alaska, those markets are all thriving. Oh, yeah. UK. We have a question from Kevin Hodgson in the UK. Uh, I have tons of friends in the UK that, that ride. Uh, and we had several questions about this. Is People wonder why no cargo mounts on the fork. Very good question. You know, I think uh, there are, are a couple bicycle manufacturers that do a really good job of providing users multiple mounting points. Mm-hmm. You know, Trek 
came at it from a slightly different angle. We came out fat bikes with a performance oriented mindset and, uh, you know, kind of no compromises. Obviously when you add mounts, you add weight and complexity and things like that. Um, we were kind of coming at it from, as I said, the more performance oriented thing. Um, we do find that a lot of, a lot of users are, um, trying to fashion their own bags and bottles and racks to, and specifically fenders to their bikes. You know, the, the hottest thing right now that I get most feedback on is frame bags. Right. right you know, on. people, um, and that's mostly from northern climates where if you're not bringing a second pair of gloves or you're not bringing some other things with you, if you're going out right. for more than an hour ride. Your puffy you're, jacket. Yeah. You're, you're dumb, you know. Or, uh, or your uh, two ice cold beers. Right. So it's right. a nice place to go. You know, in, in kind of lower climates where it's, you know, people are, I'd say the lower half of Wisconsin where people are just rip going out for an hour rip on their mountain bike. They don't mm. typically need, uh, you know, like all these accessories and, and packs. But when you get up in Alaska and other northern climates, Finland, um, they're, they're, they're looking for more provisions. The, when, when I read this question, I thought, well, there are lots of aftermarket accessories that allow you to put bags on your fork legs without the brazons. Mm-hmm. There's strap-on brazons. Uh, so... You know, there, there's your answer. So, um, one other thing, this is Tony Berger's question from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, yes, why no steel bikes? <laughs> I mean, I've gotten that question probably in every single category of it's mountain bikes. Track, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to, to be frank, historically with, is, is like a steel bike company. I, if you're an old guy like me, I remember that, right? To be frank with you, I think. Um, most users are still cognizant of weight, even on fat bikes. Um, I know I am. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they're looking at shaving grams on their tires. So it's kind of goes flies in the face of that. It's not to say that we'd never do one, um, but it's probably not the top of the list right now for what we do in steel. I think there's a, other bikes we'd want to do in steel first. Frankly, it's hard to, you don't see a whole lot of steel manufacturing done. Um, it's, a kind of a dying thing except for on the boutique level i mean handmade bikes you see quite a bit of it but production made bikes uh, you have to search for for a steel bike yeah especially a quality one um Mm -hmm. you know there's a it's hard there's also with us it's an opportunity cost if we do something as like a steel bike that means we're not doing something else maybe we're not exploring the new 27 mm-hmm. 5 the new full suspension opportunity for whatever it might be so we just given our resources we have to make those tough decisions sometimes what which opportunity are we going to go after steel road bike might be kind of more of a thing than a steel fat bike to be honest but that's yeah that's another a, a another, lo- another story steel road bike could <laughs> well, probably be you know a popular item. I don't know. But, um, how about full suspension plus and fat bikes? Uh, yeah, you how, know, how I do just you feel I, about that market. Yeah, I just rode my um, Farley EX the other day, actually, and was reminded how awesome that bike is for for what it is. You That's know, a bike I'd love to ride. I mean, the, the to try out. I mean. Yeah, I mean, when we were developing it, um, it was certainly something that um, we all felt was meaningful, and that's why we came out with it. Not everyone has access to groomed, manicured trails uh, like we do have here sometimes. And those boot-tracked, snowshoed-in trails or hand-groomed trails are ripe for um, 
a full suspension bike, despite what a lot of people may think. You know, the, there's the trails across the street for sure have definitely a lot of playscape on them built mm-hmm. into them that that bike would be. At awesome. the time, we were also seeing a lot of customers who were using their fat bike as their year-round bike. Right. A lot right. of customers right. from Arizona and Florida who their their fat bikes never touched snow, but they were just riding them year-round. It's their fun bike, their adventure bike. Yeah. And for that customer, a full suspension fat bike, too, made a lot of sense. Um, they were riding it like their traditional mountain bike. Yeah, you find that, you know, when you talk to retailers and consumers in, say, the Twin Cities, as an example, where they see five, six months of snow on the ground, that user, you know, would really benefit from a bike that's actually, you know, really good in the wintertime, but also pretty decent in the summertime. And if they had only one mountain bike, it's a pretty good quiver killer. Right. Or one, one bike with two sets of wheels. Uh, you know, I always say, I recently just changed from riding a plus bike in the, uh, in the summertime or in the normal mountain bike as my mountain bike to riding my carbon fat bike with a carbon set of 50 millimeter B plus wheels uh, with 3.8 fat bike tires. I'm kind of a bigger guy. I like a bigger tire, but that bike kind of like, and, and you put a dropper post on that bike and you've got, you've got a 24 pound ripper, you know, and kind of like the asterisk there is, is, Around here, I like to ride a rigid bike. Um, so, you know, it's a 24-pound rigid single-track slayer. Yeah. I mean, I talked to a gentleman in Park City, and he uses his Farley EX as his year-round bike. And it provides a lot of stability. Um, and he was, I want to say he was in his late 60s. Yeah. And for him, it was, uh, it was a safety thing. And he just liked that security of and confidence of that larger tire. And, you know, the same thing could be said for kind of the plus phenomena. You know, people really gravitated towards, uh, when I say plus, 2.8 to Mm -hmm. 3.0 segment because it really offered a demonstrable, you know, effect on the trail. People noticed right away that they could roll over things, bash right through things without really batting an eye, um, especially get it up, up and over things. Indeed. So it seems like the industry is has taking the plus 3.0 to 3.25 and downsized it slightly to 2.6 to 2.8. Uh, where, do, where do you think that gets driven from? Is that coming from the tire companies? Is that is that people out west that are riding uh, these plus bikes? I, I, I just wondered why... Why it seemed like over the last year you see less of the full 29-plus bike tires and you see many, many more of these the tires that are in between yeah. mountain bike and... I mean, I think that's just a natural progression. You have um, users in the marketplace that are very curious about mm-hmm. these new things that are out there and curious if it's going to... Take those baby steps and get the 2.6 <laughs> to see if it's... Right. Yeah. No one, I think, is knows the result they're just out there being curious and kind of um happy to be the the first person out there on their local group ride to have tested something and be able to tell their buddies they've ridden something that's awesome or it's not yeah and uh i haven't i haven't heard a definitive on those people you know i follow the forum boards you know here and there and and I haven't seen a whole bunch of users going oh that 2.6 is so much better than my 3.0 ever was 
you know, more you, oh, more I often it's I, we have somebody that that, <laughs> that writes me that is just yeah, you have to have a 35 millimeter rim and nothing bigger than a 2.8 or else you're a moron. So, yeah, there, there, there's a guy out there. <laughs> but I, I mean, I think it's as much of a size thing as it is uh, construction, tire construction, tire um, tread design. You can have an awesome 2.6 tire with the you know the right tread, com- you know, right tread, right compound, you know, the right shape. Uh, right design, mm-hmm. or you can have a really bad one. And the same thing goes for three O. Same thing goes for two eight. And we saw that first and foremost um, when we were developing plus tires way back when. There were a bunch of twelve hundred gram two point eight tires out there, and right. you know had had Trek come out with a twelve or thirteen hundred gram three point tire, it would have been dead, dead. But that being said, you know we have an XR four. 3.0 tire and frankly when i take my stash out west that's mm-hmm. the only tire i'll ride it's perfect it takes that hardtail and transitions it to something that's a way more capable capable bike and sometimes i don't even realize i'm riding a hardtail take that same xr4 3.0 tire here in wisconsin it's way overkill yeah 90 percent of the time it's too much tire not so you know, I think that thing, that same concept and same conversation transitions kind of back to fat bikes where I could tell you this Narwhal tire is the best tire I've ever ridden, but that's my perspective here. And for the right. normal types of trails I ride and the con- snow conditions I ride, whereas someone in Alaska has different conditions. And that's one of the advantages of well, all the new product development in the B-fat area is that there are more variety of tires. I mean, just within your line, you have... Uh, well, actually, you guys really were—you were so far ahead of the curve. Uh, it, it's when the, the first thing that you had said is 2014. You were thinking about or 2013, and 2014 is when you came out with your first B-fat tire. That's five years ago now. So I can see why when we were talking about uh, in our read-through, you were like, "This isn't new," <laughs> <laughs> but you know, some—you know—the consumers. They move very slowly. Right, and there uh, are a people. Guy bought a bike five years ago is looking to buy a new bike now, right, right. and he hasn't been thinking about it. Right. So. Well, originally you started asking, too, if like uh, if we're still bullish on the 3-inch mm-hmm. tires as right. well. And the answer is yes, absolutely, with like the stash and the full stash that we came out with. And we still think there is a lot of benefit to that as well, too. But at the same time, we are doing 2.6 tires on some trail bikes as well. We create a lot of different bikes for a lot of different riders who all ride in different ways. So we're trying to support a lot of different people out there. And I like the I like the instead of thinking of it as new standards, the thing as options, filling in all those blanks. Uh, I can remember in 1986 we would have killed for a 2.6 inch tire. Uh, you know, so having all those different wheel sizes, wheel rim widths and tires, it, I see it as a good thing. So It's fun to see people playing around with different tire sizes and types and, you know, finding out what works best for them. And, you know, it's fun. It is. And, Chris, you mentioned, too, the regionality as well, too. You, got to, you have to allow for it because where you ride and how you ride, it varies greatly. 
Well, let's talk about your current ride. I know Chris brought his bike into the I up did. to us conference room. You know, I'm looking at it right here. Yeah, I've gotten actually three rides on it this week, so I'm pretty pleased. You know, um, this time of year, I'm hoping to get four or five days of riding a week on it. And uh, actually, yesterday I found my seat post actually frozen up in the frame, which it was a testament to actually riding a lot. Happens to the best which is, of us. Which is good. And so I, I, I think I've, uh, I've learned to make sure every season that my seat post is greased properly yeah, all I, I the time. I had to hold a telethon for one of my bikes that uh, had it frozen in there. And <laughs> yeah. It did come through eventually. But it would, and it was the crazy Coca-Cola that finally got it loose. We tried all the over the over the shelf stuff, and it was the upside down fill it with coke that that finally broke it loose. Yeah, this this was a little brute force and uh, some penetrating oil that kind of did the trick there. Maybe a hammer or two, maybe a vice mixed in, but. <laughs> and a lot of a lot of uh, uh, you know worry. Like, yeah, is this gonna break if I put this much pressure on it? Well, what your listeners can't see is it's painted in a kind of a custom paint scheme it's kind of a chrome on carbon so it's yeah, kind of it is pretty gorgeous it's if they let me take a picture i'll i'll put a picture but you're, you're running a dropper post tell yeah me, tell me uh how you feel about dropper posts yeah i can't you know tell you how much or how important these are for you know fat biking and i think one of the things that i found is that if you can get lower in the corners get your center of gravity lower you're going to be much better off at, you know, some of those tricky corners, getting off the bike, getting on the bike, it all aids in uh, a positive experience. And so, you know, when I'm talking to friends, colleagues on what they can do with their fat bike to, to make a better experience on the trail, it's a dropper post and, uh, even more important than even on a trail bike and trail bikes, it's really important. It's that's all about biking trapper poster. It's, it's a, Game changer. Even even an old dog like me, a couple mm-hmm. years ago, I rode a bike with a dropper, and I was like, "Oh my god, where's this been all my life?" <laughs> it's like, yeah, and you guys ride Camrock at all? Yeah, of course. you know that rip and ride mm-hmm. section. I rode that faster than I've ever ridden it before. You know, just it was it was like turn on the switch. Is like, oh, dropper post. You know, you can also weight your front tire. Um, a little bit differently so you can actually shift your weight back as needed um to weight that front tire because we all know that weighting your front tire is a is a kind of an art as well mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh you can weight it too much and then you'll know what happens there um or if you don't weight it enough there's also consequences there um so dropper posts really important get one if you don't have one it's uh it's a game changer you know the other thing i would like to point out is um i guess it was three years ago i studded up my narwhal tires and uh, I thought it was kind of going to be a wheel set I used just when the trails got icy but what I actually found was I was actually getting twice as many days on the trails as I was the year before because in those variable conditions where there might have been some ice or some glaze over you know a lot of I'm hearing from a lot of users around the world that their trails are icing over more than they have in the last you know five six years ten years and so those variable conditions exist more often. And honestly, it's just great peace of mind. I'm getting out there more often and it's great peace of mind. And for the whatever, 60 grams for the set of studs, it's inconsequential really in the grand scheme of things. And it's it's just kind of a, I just keep them on the bike all year round now, actually. 
Yeah, there you have it. You'll be riding more. If I you say year round, not in the summertime. But <laughs> this, my fat bike is my winter bike, so yeah. we would have got some se- comments on that one. Yeah, the winter what? season, the winter season. Yeah, but they don't wear down on the pavement as much as you might think either. You know, car- good carbide stud doesn't wear down. So, talk to us about front suspension for uh, for fat bikes. You know, we spec a bike with front suspension. Um, we worked very closely with Manitou. Actually, I was the guy who went to Manitou and said, hey, we need a proper suspension fork. Um, the Mastodon. The Mastodon. What we were currently being offered um, was good at the time. I kind of liken it to the first dropper post. The Bluto was kind of like the first dropper post. It worked. It was great. It's great they came out with it, but it had its time, and uh, people were looking to push their bikes a little further. And people are riding them harder. And so fast forward, you know, the Mastodon came out and we um, we love it. And I think it's not for everyone, granted. But if you're riding on varied terrain and boot-packed in terrain and riding in the summertime, want to make your bike a four-season bike, it is a great option. Um, that actually works really well in the cold. And I, w- I would vouch for that. I think some users have worried that if they're riding, you know, in sub-zero temperatures, bike's not going to work or the fork's not going to work. And, and that was definitely um, one of the key characteristics that we went to Manitou with is this has to work in the cold because a lot of our users are riding in really, really frigid temperatures and the thing can't go out, right? So, and Manitou's another Wisconsin company mm-hmm. uh, and they, they, uh, they make shocks for snow machines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so they, they actually they have a ton of experience with cold weather. Right, so they actually drew on some of their cold weather um suspension technology and and um, I won't get into all the details, but they looked at seals and oils and and uh you know, it's pretty complicated to make something that works well in warm temperatures but also works well in cold temperatures because you don't know where these bikes are going to be ridden. Some sure. are being w- ridden in you know, it's just the right. Mongolian desert, to be honest. Right. I mean, that's we sell, right. we sell bikes to Mongolia, believe it or not. Yeah. And uh, some are being ridden in, you know, the most frigid temperatures of Alberta. So it's, uh, it's it was a tough, tough thing, but they, I, I've heard nothing but positive results from those people that have them. Okay. Now talk to us about, we, we had a discussion and you mentioned a winter-specific fat bike, making a bike specifically for the winter season? Yeah, I mean, I think there are some things that um, those that ride their bikes specifically in winter can relate to. And one of those is rim width, tire selection, um, studs, which I kind of already mentioned, Um, you know, bar mitts, you know, even clothing, right? I think there are some things that are really important that you wouldn't necessarily, if you're just making an all around fat bike, you'd probably ignore um, or you'd compromise on. But if you were making a winter specific fat bike, there are some things that really are kind of meaningful. And as I hinted, um, uh, you know, tire width and rim width are, are two, uh, two things that kind of go hand in hand. And um, generally speaking, if you're, if you're running a, a um, winter fat bike, you want to you want to pair the largest rim you can, you know, to that to that tire. Or at least have that capability, right? Right, and yes, there's some you know potential denting that can come with a, a wider rim, but the benefit of holding and supporting that sidewall under low pressures is is pretty significant. So when when I think about some of the changes that are happening with fat bikes in that. Companies that are looking at 
fast bikes as a four season, they tend to make them follow the progressive geometry of mountain biking. They make a little slacker head angle. Um, so how do you feel about that? I, that's another thing that I think, what's driving this slacker slacker head angle in omni-terrain bikes? People are, want to ride their bikes a little bit more like trail bikes. I right. Think the popularity of trail bikes and how people ride trail bikes is kind of dictating how a lot of mountain bikes are being designed right now. Mm-hmm. People want to have fun on their bikes. And so that trail bike geometry is kind of taking over. It's influencing cross-country bikes, just like it's influencing fat bikes and everything yeah. else. Yeah. It, the progression of trails, the progression of rider skills, and the progression mm-hmm. of that of that geometry is kind of a all in in uh in balance i guess i just i guess as as a old cross country guy i feel like 6973 is kind of sacred for that winter and there's a bunch of different ways that you can change you can get an angle set and you can you can change that head to angle so i just wanted to see if that if that played into your idea of what a true winter specific fat bike would be there's definitely um some things to consider when when you know, designing a geometry around a winter-specific fat bike, it really comes down to, as Travis said before, what the user is going to do with it. If we were talking about a Arrowhead 150 or a um, guy riding to one of the poles in Antarctica, mm-hmm. we'd have a completely different answer to a winter fat bike than if we are talking about a race bike to win one of the, you know, race series in, in Minnesota. Sure. So uh, a couple of things need to be taken into account. Um, you know, obviously there's head tube angle, there's fork offset, there's, you know, your, your reach uh, numbers, um, there's stem length, there's, you know, you have to take into account how that wheel and tire are going to interface um, with the surface that they're, they're on. And that surface is very different depending on um, what you're trying to do with the bike. And a lot of fat bike races have, you know, they're planned to be groomed and they're planned to be firm and then they're not. Right. And, and then people are, then people are running around and, and trying all sorts of different things, um, changing stem, you know, stems, changing, you know, bar width and tire pressures and tire selection and all sorts of things. So, you know, I don't think we've, I don't think the industry has actually played around that much in the last couple of years. I haven't seen anything really revolutionary. There was a couple of bikes that came out that were kind of more aggressive, hardtail fat bikes, and they did well for a very short time. And then word was they kind of flopped. Um, don't know why they flopped, but um, I think there's still work to be done in terms of um, improving the handling on varied surface. In, in the plus bike realm anyway, the head tube angle is just slackening and slackening and getting down into that 65 degree head tube angle. Um, and I, and I understand the advantages of it going downhill. It's going uphill that and going uphill slow like I do, (laughs) but it misbehaves for me. So, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I kind of laugh at my fat bike sometimes. If you were to look closely, you'd see a 90 degree stem on there flipped upside down <laughs> and it's probably my only bike that has a 90 degree stem on it sounds my road bike yeah and uh and it's probably the longest by like 30 millimeters <laughs> yeah. so but it's That's important to be a 130 or something on there right <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty long it's it's a 90 oh 90 millimeters yeah. got it yeah 
but uh it's important to have that you know that front end properly weighted you know for those flat corners and things so absolutely so is this the bike that you ride the most in in the winter time it is it is and as you can see with the stranglehold dropout i have it positioned kind of in the middle i've put it almost as far forward as i can with a narwhal and uh studs so and i kind of like that kind of happy medium of right in the middle of the the dropout so very cool and then we have another bike over here one of our uh engineers lead engineers um and he's been i know you're not going to let me take a picture of that one because i see stuff i haven't seen before (laughs) (laughs) well we'll let travis answer that but (laughs) it's pretty cool it's got a, a a camo dip on it Yep, that was uh, our engineer, Eric Freeberg. He took that out. He had a favorite camo pattern that he wanted to get on this bike, so he took it to a place, and we had it dipped, and it's it's a looker. Yeah, indeed. And a, a dropper and the, the big the big 4.5 uh, beef hat tires on there. Yeah, and uh, you were talking about differences in setups, too. I mean, look at the big riser bar on his bike compared to the flat bar that Chris is running as well, too. Just two different types of riding styles. Cool. Well, I really appreciate you two taking the time to uh, to answer our questions about where things are going. I'm glad to hear that you're optimistic about the uh, the fat bike world because uh, you know, that's the world that we live in. Absolutely. Thanks for coming out to yeah. the headquarters here. It's this good to see kind of, you. We're kind of in the middle of it in terms of winter. Everyone's kind of enjoying their best trails right now, which I know, which is awesome. The the conditions here last weekend were just awesome. Yeah, we, I would concur. Friday was probably the best day on yeah. trails that I have had in a couple of years. Styrofoam, hard styrofoam snow. Yeah, it was good. It was almost like riding in the summertime just in terms of traction. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, heck yeah. And I was talking to our trail boss today, too. It's exciting. We're getting a new groomer as well oh, for cool. the trails, yeah. Are you in a, a track type uh, of It's a snow dog. Oh, that's correct. nice. Yeah. Nice, yeah. Um, and that's one thing that I'll close the show with saying, that Trek has trails right across the street that the product development team can make a small tweak on, on something. They can rake out the fork an extra degree and go and ride it. They can prototype it here and they can go and ride it. And that's, I think, such a big advantage compared to the other product development processes that, that I've been exposed to. Holy cow. It's like, well, that's how we've been able to kind of make some of these changes and make some of these, um, I wouldn't say new standards because they're not new standards, but make some of these leaps and in innovations because we were able to test them right away. And we could prototype them, test them, experience them, and make tweaks. And uh, it's kind of sh- results in the in the products that we've come out with. And you'll continue to see Trek uh, innovate, and that's the beauty of making bikes. Right on. Thanks again, guys. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Danger Gnome Podcast on Fat Bike Radio. The Ninja Gnome Podcast is powered by Gnome Voodoo and is a production of the Black Black Ribbon Society. Mm-hmm.